Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Yes, it's Art Fern, your host for Tea Time Bible Geek. And uh, we've a number of good uh, questions to deal with and uh, pretend we have answers to in the coming hour or so. So I'm glad you could be with us, and I hope I can keep you awake. Uh, Let's look at the old rain barrel here. And uh, here's one from Dan Mangum from Tigard, Oregon. Uh, Dear Great Bible Geekster, I was recently proselytized at home by two young men. I shared with them up front that I was an atheist, but that did not dissuade them. Instead, they maintained their smiles while asking me if they could share a Bible passage. Hallelujah. You know, this this reminds me of what uh, old... uh, what the heck's his name? The guy with the uh, uh, Marshall McLuhan. Uh, he said the medium is the message. If you go around uh, sharing a message like this, it's the manner of your presentation that is the message. It's telling you all you need to know about whatever they're selling. Anyway, sorry. Uh, As an amateur student of the Bible, a regular Bible geek listener, I was thrilled. I was like a dog being tempted with some bacon bits. I was drooling in anticipation. They chose two lines in Matthew when Jesus, after performing countless miracles and healings, is trying to find out if the disciples are catching on. Matthew 16, 15 through 16. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Uh, Or, gee, you know, I should do the right Petrine voice. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's more like it. Uh, This was all they wanted to read, just these two lines. I was quite disappointed. It was like opening a Christmas present and finding a pair of used socks. They did not read the previous couple of lines when various other disciples offered some guesses on who was this mysterious son of man. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, Godzilla, Daffy Duck, etc., My visitors also did not read the next line on how Jesus responded to Peter. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. The Bible part only meant, at the very most, that just one person ages ago thought Jesus was the Messiah, 
uh, while his compatriots continued to act like a bunch of clueless dimwits. My mind was filled with questions for this traveling duo. Why, I asked, did Jesus not give a more direct response, or ever tell his disciples who he really was exactly? Their response was that uh, Jesus did not want to make it easy for them, and that his disciples had to figure this out on their own. Uh, is this a common apologist argument to claim that Jesus was purposefully vague because figuring out his true identity at the penalty of either an eternity in heaven or hell uh, was the best idea or plan God or Jesus could devise at the time? Uh, it, it sort of sounds familiar. I, I probably have have heard it before. But uh, it, it reminds me of this uh, ancient rationalization of why the Christian view of the Messiah differed so starkly from the contemporary Jewish views, and there were several, uh, warrior, king, uh, David's line, etc., etc. And what's the answer to that? Well, uh, you see, Jesus was... uh, uh, totally redefining the notion of the Messiah, so he didn't broadcast that he was the Messiah because that would give people the wrong idea. They'd hear it in their own terms, and so he didn't want to mislead them by making that claim. Uh, and but he, as he understood it, which is the same as saying as it really was, uh, as God understood it, he was the Messiah. It's just somewhere along the line, the meaning of it had gotten totally garbled. Uh, I uh, that in a way, you know, you can kind of see that. Um, I used to know Moonies, for instance, who would say, yeah, sometimes in fundraising, we don't say at first who we are or what the Unification Church actually is because the news media has been so full of distortions about us that if we say, hi there, we're the Moonies, they're going to hear, oh, we're brainwashed cultist zombies. Uh, And we're not. Uh, By the way, I've never known any Moonies who uh, fit that stereotype. I I guess there could be some, but uh, I've known plenty of unificationists and never seen that in action. Okay, so so I I can kind of see the point, but is there any, but, but does it ever say that in the Gospels? I mean, that's kind of a big thing. Uh, no, it doesn't. It uh, it just if if that's what he meant, you you might as well have thought Jesus would have said uh, that uh, no, I'm not, or that more likely that Jesus would have thought I'm not the Messiah if that's what the Messiah is supposed to be. Uh, but to say, oh, well, I am, but it really means something totally different than what you think. What what does that mean? Uh, it, it that seems to me to be a, an an apologetic attempt to claim the the uh, dynamic of Jewish messianism without actually uh, admitting. Well, let's say while admitting that the Christian definition is totally different than what anybody else thinks. So, oh yeah, I, I'm the real Messiah, not like the one you know. Well, what? Uh, and so that seems to me pretty darn fishy. Anyway, it's obvious that they're just uh, putting a later Christian dogma into the mouth of Jesus. 
Now, let's also go back a step and point out that uh, it's pretty clear this is not an authentic saying of Jesus, even assuming there was a Jesus, right? For one thing, uh, Mark didn't have this, right? He, he had Peter say, you are the Christ. Uh, the the uh, titles have been elaborated. Did, did Mark just forget to uh, add the son of the living God? I mean, that's not superfluous, right? That's not redundant or trivial. It, it seems pretty darn clear that that is a Matthean redactional addition. If he has a story where Jesus reveals the truth about himself or somebody else does, uh, then let's let's um, make it even truer. Let's uh, have it uh, defined more. If he is to say the truth, well, there's a little more to the truth than Mark had, so let's pack more in. You are the Christ, uh, the Son of the living God. So we're – and then similarly, the uh, blessed are you uh, – Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed it to you, but rather uh, my Father in heaven. That, uh, he doesn't have, oh, wait a minute now, does he, uh, no, he doesn't have that. And that really rules out the notion that he was waiting for them to get it, like, you know, Socrates would when he's dialoguing with people and trying to get them to see what he sees by the path of rational thought. No, that's out of the question, because uh, <laughs> the text itself has Jesus say, you didn't arrive at this conclusion by mortal means. Uh, nobody could. It had to have been God himself who revealed it to you. Uh, so uh, he he couldn't have been waiting for them to get it because, uh, like, oh, I know. No, uh, it, it must have been a bolt from the blue. Now, why point that out when Mark does not have that? Oh, Luke, by the way, of course, doesn't have it either. Uh, he slightly changes the reply of Peter to you are the Christ of God, but that really doesn't add much the Christ that God sent, whatever, right? Uh, but he doesn't have the blessed are you business. Uh, now, so it becomes pretty obvious Matthew added it. Now, why did he? Well, it's the best explanation I ever heard, and this sounds very natural to me, is that this is a Matthean rejoinder to uh, what... Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, whether Matthew had read that or not, who knows, but it seems like a refutation of the same basic idea, that um, that uh, in 1 Corinthians' first couple of chapters, that uh, the things of the Spirit are only for those who have the pneumatikoi, the, the spiritual ones, uh, who uh, have the, the gnosis from God. Uh, nobody else can understand what's going on in the gospel. Uh, and uh, just as in the uniquely Matthean addition to Mark, it goes on to say, because of this revelation, um, Peter will be the foundation on which Jesus will build his church. Well, what does it say in uh, 
in uh, First Corinthians, there is no other foundation but that of Christ. Now that seems to be, you know, we're we're reading two sides of the debate here. Uh, so it seems to be an anti-Pauline jab. Uh, not the only one in Matthew, right? Who is that guy that says, "But Lord, uh, we." Uh, did all kinds of miracles in your name. We cast out demons in your name, as as uh, Judas says in uh, Last Temptation. Don't you recognize me? Uh, well, no, uh, you're not on the list. Get out of here. Uh, or um, the uh, uh, those who is it who says that you ought to neglect the least of these commandments so that's got to be paul right uh so um it seems to me yeah this really is, is every assumption underlying the the uh, door-to-door salesman of the gospels uh is is just fallacious now of course all this implies a critical eye the critical method these guys are just proof texting it as if it uh, were understood to be infallible a genuine record of what jesus and the others said and uh, everybody knows that well it's an argument that might have some weight with fellow fundamentalists but not with anybody who uh, understands uh, the the critical approach to the bible and let me just say one more time, why is the critical approach to the Bible the better one? Well, because it, it allows us to understand the Bible and its puzzles, whereas literalism only creates problems like the, the ones you mentioned in your objections. So good luck with the next time they, uh, they come by. Maybe you should give them a copy of uh, Strauss's... Uh, Life of Jesus Critically Examined, or Bultmann's History of the Synoptic Tradition, though I sort of don't think they'd read it. Uh, or my uh, uh, Holy Fable, Volume 2, about the Gospels and Acts. Okay, thanks, Dan. Oh, Dan, Dan, the Atheist Man. Okay, here's one from uh, from Nora. Uh I'm curious, I should look into the origin of that name, because I can't help thinking it's another version of Noria, which uh, in the Nag Hammadi texts is the name of Noah's wife. Uh, you'd think it'd be more likely to be the name of his uh, sister, but uh, she's not in the story. Anyway, I remember the name Nora from uh, watching... Uh, Nick and Nora with uh, this detective show, uh, The Thin Man, some movies and then TV with Peter Peter uh, Lawford as as the detective and his wife. Don't remember who she the actress was, but she was Nora. I've always liked that name. Sorry, uh, Nora says in your pre-Nicene New Testament and amazing colossal apostle, you mentioned that you agree with Schleiermacher's view. Or as my professor Bob Streetman used to say, Schlamacher's view, he's a fellow Mississippian, uh, that First Timothy must have been written by a different later author than Second Timothy and Titus. And you know, you know, right, that the uh, the order in which these appear in the the canon is a later editorial decision, right? So, uh, well, what are you saying? Second is before first. Well, that's just an editorial convention. Okay, uh, Timothy, First Timothy must have been written by a different later author than Second Timothy and Titus. 
written by the a single author. The arguments for this seeming, seem relatively strong, but it raises the question of who might have written First Timothy. As far as I'm aware, and correct me if I'm wrong, Irenaeus's treatise Against Heresies is the first explicit external reference we have to the pastorals. Do you think it's possible that Irenaeus himself could be the author of First Timothy? Um, interrupt you, yeah, I, I have often thought that. Um, this would make sense if we assume that Polycarp wrote Second Timothy and Titus, since Irenaeus was an admirer of Polycarp and claims to have heard him preach when he was growing up in Smyrna. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, goes on. Nora goes on. My second and related question is whether you think it's possible that someone, possibly Irenaeus, forged Polycarp's epistle to the Philippians. It seems like almost everyone assumes that this epistle is authentic, but given that it's essentially just a mosaic of different scriptural references, it's hard for me to believe that Polycarp could have written it. It reminds me of how Ephesians is little more than allusions to other passages in the Pauline corpus. Perhaps Irenaeus wanted to forge the letter so he could have a nice introduction for a collection of the Ignatian epistles, but who knows? Uh, that would uh, make a lot of sense. And uh, uh, Oh yeah, wait a minute, there's one more little paragraph. Uh, all of this bears on the question of who published the first edition of the New Testament as well, since if Irenaeus wrote First Timothy, then Polycarp couldn't have published the first New Testament canon, as David Trobish has suggested. Could Irenaeus have done so? Uh, yeah, that is not at all unlikely. In fact, uh, Stephen Huller has argued that it was Irenaeus, and uh, and would make sense. That's that's true. Um, so yeah, yeah, that that could well be. You got a sharp eye there, uh, and uh, of course there are a lot more people in early Christianity than the few names we know. So it's always a temptation to connect these dots, even if there used to be plenty of other dots, right? Uh, but yeah, with what we've got, the little we've got, it does. Uh, Trobish's case seems to me to be very sound, and uh, your and Huller's. Uh, amendment to it, shall we say, also seems not unlikely. Yeah, so, boy, I tell you, those pastoral epistles, though they seem dull, they're very fascinating once you see uh, the uh, the interesting questions they raise. Uh, our pal Chris Cheshire says, just needing a refresher, do you consider yourself an agnostic or an atheist, and would you please elaborate? Yeah, I have said this before, but it's always worth uh, mentioning again. What is the difference between an agnostic and an atheist? Well, it seems simple. An atheist believes there is no God. Uh, and the agnostic says there might be, there might not be. Neither sounds unreasonable, but I don't see sufficient reason to pronounce on it one way or the other. So I'm still, uh, you know, the the uh, the votes aren't all in. I I don't know. 
might be a god. It's not absurd, but really, you know, there are real problems with, you know, the problem of evil. Why would God allow this? But on the other hand, maybe he has his reasons. I don't know. Well, that's not bad. Uh, that is a distinction worth pointing out. But there are some problems with this because some people say that um, that uh, the agnostic is the one who believes one cannot know whether there's a God or not. Well, I, I don't know who's got the copyright on this, but Thomas Henry Huxley, who coined the term, was very clear that he was not saying it was unknowable, that there would never be a convincing answer. He's like, I don't know about that either, right? I'm not saying you can't know. I'm saying I don't yet see how we can. But who knows what the future holds? Maybe it will become clear somehow. Uh, and and um, so that's important to keep in mind. By the way, that's exactly the same distinction made by the ancient uh, skeptics founded by Pyrrho uh, and uh, uh, not, not Pyro, one of the uh, members of the um, Brotherhood of Evil Mutants and the X-Men. But uh, uh, the... Um, uh, but uh, the, the skeptics said the same thing many, many centuries before Huxley, that, uh, he, that uh, no one had ever been able to settle all these big metaphysical, invisible questions. What is the ultimate right and wrong? Is there life after death? Is there a God? Uh, look at all the debates about these things, all the different opinions. Wouldn't you think if anybody had made a convincing case on any of these questions that they wouldn't continue to be debated? Uh, well, uh, in that case, do we really know if we need a, an answer to these things? Do we have to operate on the basis of uh, absolute right versus wrong and what they are? Do we really need to know whether there is a God or gods, whatever? Do you have to know whether there's life after death? Well, no. I mean, it, it would the need would be... Can you live a, a good life without answers to these? <laughs> if you think about it, obviously you can, right? Uh, and but but aren't we in darkness without these? No, you're not. Uh, probability is a good enough guide to life. Uh, you don't have to have absolute knowledge. You just have to get on the best you can using your brain and looking at the facts. You might be wrong, but of course, even somebody that believes there's an absolute will of God has to ask himself, well, how do I know what it is? So, you know, even if you believe these things, you're not really that much better off. Um, and so, uh, okay, yeah, that's that's skepticism with a capital S, and uh, that's agnosticism in the textbook definition. What about atheism? Is atheism a faith position, as fundamentalists like to say? Well, with some people, that might be correct, uh, that uh, you, you say, I know there's no God. Are you sure? I mean, how? What did you get a revelation from heaven? Listen close, I don't exist, right? How could you know this? Is it really that 
uh, clear that there's no God. I mean, I, I have to admit, the the miracle of of childbearing and reproduction and all of that that is so astounding. It's easy for me to to see how people believe there must have been a designer. Uh, now, I finally think now evolution really shows how it is, but. You don't have to be some stupid primitive to to start thinking, you know, where did all this come from? I mean, isn't there, don't you realize there's a possibility that there's a, a God? So um, there are some who are committed to it like a faith position, but uh, I don't think, at least in my experience, I don't think most atheists would uh, say things like that. I get the impression that common sense atheism is is a kind of agnosticism, but it doesn't really think that the existence of God is what William James called a live option. I, well, yeah, it's possible, but I just don't see any real reason to think so. Uh, I mean, is it possible there are little guys living under the surface of the moon? Well, <laughs> guess anything's possible, but, you know, what are the chances of that? What, what reason is there to, to think that? Uh, do, uh, um, are, are the Jehovah's Witnesses right? Uh, look, I guess it's possible, but really, why think so? That's the kind of atheism I, uh, embrace. I just don't see it, but I don't know that it's not true. Uh, so that's, uh, I'm kind of redrawing the boundaries, but I think that's, uh, both of those definitions have a good, uh, good pedigree and, uh, make a lot of sense. So what are you, Chris? Okay. Now, uh, who's up next? Luther. Uh, can you talk about the introduction of baptism into Christianity? It's interesting to me that a pre-Christian John the Baptist performs baptisms of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, Mark, 14, Mark 1, 4. Uh, Jesus doesn't seem to baptize anyone. The disciples and apostles don't seem to have been baptized or to have baptized anyone uh, for a while. And then in Acts 2, Peter advises the listeners to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, Acts 2.38. Well, you know, there's a little bit of a fly in this ointment in that the Gospel of John says that Jesus was baptizing at the same time John did. but uh, some some interpolator says it wasn't actually Jesus who baptized. Uh, rather, it was his disciples. Well, still, that's uh, that's almost the same problem in terms of your question. And it, it looks like this is one of those instances where the Gospel of John is trying to read the, the writer's own circumstances back into the time of Jesus. Uh, it's another attempt to juxtapose Jesus and Brand X. Uh, Here's a couple of different baptisms. Which one gets rid of the sin? Well, it's Jesus, not Comet or Ajax. Um, But yeah, uh, on the whole, yeah, that does, it seems to be a uh, post-Jesus development. However, I got to say that 
it again, we don't have all the dots. In some cases, we do, though we don't know how to connect them. As uh, Kurt Rudolph says in his great book, Gnosis, a terrific book on Gnosticism, he says, if you throw the Mandeans and the, the Qumran people in, there were other baptizing sects, several of them, in fact, the Masbotheans, the Sabians, and so on. Uh, and uh, so it looks like it was a kind of a sectarian thing to do uh, in in those days. And so it, it could just be that Christianity picked it up from the general environment. It's like, who invented prayer? Uh, well, probably nobody we know of, but a whole lot of people did, and it didn't really matter who was the... Uh, uh, the the originator. Who knows where they picked it up, and and if it had been, and of course, if you say that Jesus himself may have been a literary product of early Christians, then uh, the whole thing becomes moot because if uh, the same people that invented Jesus invented Christian baptism, you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other. Okay, Luther goes on to say, in my Missouri Synod, and sometimes Evangelical Lutheran Synod slash Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod upbringing, I understood, talk about sectarian divisiveness, I understood baptism to erase original sin. But looking at the texts, I now find it interesting that it's either a pre-Christian ritual by the Dead Sea Scrolls sect, Essenes, and John's followers, or a post Christ ritual, but seemingly skipping over Jesus entirely. Is it just appended on to Christianity later to accommodate John's sect and or the Essenes? Uh, entirely plausible, entirely likely, because uh, there certainly are other attempts in Luke and John to reach out to the uh, John the Baptist group and incorporate it, this would make sense. Otherwise, wouldn't we have some mention of it related to Jesus himself other than his own baptism? How did the parts about it washing away the stain of original sin, as opposed to just forgiving your actual sins, get into the picture? Well, for one thing, uh, the idea of baptism being a subsequent uh, post-Jesus um, development is almost implied in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. I'd go going into all the the world, uh, uh, make disciples of of everybody, um, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Oh, what do you know? There it is, associated with Jesus. Uh, but of course, this is transparently a fabrication. Right, And they don't even dare put it into the mouth of Jesus while he was alive on earth, right? It's the resurrected Jesus. In other words, Christian prophecy. So what seems to directly associate it with Jesus actually shows that it's <laughs> that they knew it was a post-Jesus uh, addition. What about the original sin thing? Where did that come into the notion of baptism? I don't want to say where did it come from, period, but why it, uh, was it associated with baptism? This seems to have been, I think this was the inference drawn by St. Augustine, uh, if regeneration and justification and all that stuff is supposed to be coincident with, uh, with becoming a Christian, a lot of converts, right, even in his day, 
Why are children baptized? They, they're in no position to make any kind of a decision about anything, right? except maybe they uh, need their diapers change or something. Uh, well, Augustine said, I guess they must already have sin from which they need to be cleansed. Hence, there must be another kind of sin than witting voluntary sins. Uh, there must be an inherited sin, uh, and uh, I, I have read somewhere that that was uh, the origin of it. Uh, and, uh, of course, there's, a, there's an alternate and not bad explanation of, of the point of uh, infant baptism, and that is the Calvinist one, that, uh, that in the Christian covenant is in continuity with the Jewish one, but uh, supersedes it. So uh, the idea of a circumcision ritual initiating someone into the covenant of, of the people of God uh, continues, but with a different sign, water baptism rather than uh, circumcision. Well, that, that kind of makes some sense, but uh, again, it's all inference. There's no explicit theological teaching about that in, in the New Testament. Another question from uh, from Luther, he says, as a kid, I remember being taught that Christians could be divided up into Protestants and Catholics with everything other than Catholicism covered by Protestantism. Nice and simple. Later, in history classes, I learned about the Roman Empire and Eastern Orthodoxy. Okay, I could still understand that, even if it seemed funny that some massive chunk of Christianity was erased just because it didn't fit into our Western civilization classes anymore. This kind of thing always reminds me of a bumper sticker you occasionally see. Um, uh, says, orthodoxy is a major faith. And I always think, if it were, would you need to be telling people that on a bumper sticker? Uh, hey, the sky is blue, you know. Uh, yeah, right. I said the sky is green. Is oh, wow, really? Well, same sort of thing, I guess. But in fact, orthodoxy is a major faith. Uh, it's just unfamiliar to the West often, as when people call it. Uh, uh, Greek Catholicism or something. I, I know what they mean, but that's really not uh, technically true. Okay, Luther goes on. As I've learned more in recent years, I have become aware of many other types of Christianity that might not fit into those three big categories of Orthodox, Catholic, or Protestant. While many of them have either died out or are so fringe as to be basically irrelevant, Gnosticism, Ebionites, etc., I still wonder if I'm missing or overlooking anything just based on the uh, inertia of my childhood understanding. If you were to give a top-level categorization of Christianity, would you include any other groups beyond those big three of Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant? If so, what else would you include? Well, I would certainly include the Monophysite, uh, so-called Apostolic Orthodox churches of the East, uh, the uh, Coptic Church, the Ethiopian Church, the Armenian Orthodox Church, and some others. These are the ones that split back in the uh, uh, fourth century over the Monophysite controversy. 
And in fact, you could call these the monophysite churches, monophysitism or monophysite Christianity, um, because they're still around and they have evolved in a different direction to some degree, including the canon of scripture, like the Armenian Orthodox Church um, has uh, Third Corinthians in there. Uh, the uh, Ethiopian Church has... Uh, a Bible with 88 books, including some of the Apostolic Fathers, the Book of Enoch, and other goodies. Barnabas, I think, is in there, the Ignatian Epistles, First Clement, uh, and so on. Their liturgy is different, and of course, their Christology is different. They believe that um, Christ had a single nature once the human and divine natures merged at the point of the incarnation, which is, uh, that was the view rejected by the majority at the uh, Council of, uh, uh, geez, which one was that, uh, the, uh, in, oh, I'm sorry, 5th century, uh, 451, the Council of Chalcedon. And then there's Nestorian Christianity, which also exists in the East, especially in Iran, for instance. And uh, this was a slightly earlier one that split off over the outcome of the Council of uh, Ephesus, I think it is, don't hold me to it, uh, where they were debating what they thought were the views of the Bishop Nestorius. They thought, at any rate, he was saying that uh, Jesus was one person but possessed two, well, I'm sorry, Jesus was one being but a combination of two persons, the divine Logos and Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, that was sort of rejected because it sounded like adoptionism or something. And uh, uh, and what, what triggered that one was the uh, belief of some uh, who uh, that uh, praised uh, Mary as the mother of God, which, of course, Catholics still do, and I guess Orthodox. And uh, Nestorius said, oh, wait a minute, aren't you implying that uh, when he was a squalling baby that needed to have his diapers changed, he was God? That's ridiculous. God is not a baby two or three weeks old. Well, uh, his opponent said, I'm afraid he was. I mean, are you saying that is uh, too grotesque or ignominious? Well, how about a God on the cross? I mean, that's got to be even worse, right? But you believe Jesus was was God then, don't you? And so Nestorius lost out, but the Nestorians picked up their marbles and picked up their prayer beads and went home and and continued on as the Nestorians. I think there's been a big theological change, though, because I used to pass a Nestorian church on the way to a school I was teaching at, and they had a big banner saying uh, uh, something about the Theotokos, the mother of God. So I don't know. But at any rate, they maintain a separate continuity as Nestorian Christians. So I'd at least add those two, Monophysites and Nestorians. By the way, uh, there are other Armenian churches. There is an Armenian church communion that is with Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, and uh, so there's you know, a couple of uh, Armenian. This is not Arminian, right? It's with an E, not an I. Arminians are a type of anti-Calvinist Protestants, as I'm sure you know. 
I would also add as the sixth one, Mormonism. Uh, it's, I don't think you can deny that these people are Christians, though their theology is very different in some ways. And um, there are other ones that would have to just be thrown into the big sack with uh, sectarian and cult movements only because they're minority movements. There's not that many of them. The Unification Church, the Christadelphians, the Jehovah's, well, Jehovah's Witnesses, I'd have to check up on their population statistics. But some of these groups would be considered Protestant, Seventh-day Adventists, uh, but uh, some important doctrines are so different as to be considered heresies. Uh, And uh, so I guess that would have to be a kind of an appendix to the list. But Mormonism is a world religion in its own right, uh, and it certainly is a type of Christianity. So that would be uh, my taxonomy, I guess. Okay, Elliot Mudd. Always glad to hear from him. He says, you've spoken positively before about the dying and rising God mytheme, so I'm curious if you're familiar with the reaction to proponents of this theory of comparative mythology. Um, I think he means the uh, the reaction of comparative mythology scholars to this claim of the dying and rising gods. Uh, see, it seems there are many modern anthropologists who look down their nose at scholars like James Frazier, author of The Golden Bow. I have the suspicion that some, if not most, of this is just modern fashion, but I would be very interested in your thoughts. Uh, here is an example collected from Wikipedia summarizing a criticism of Frazier and the Dying and Rising God archetype. The Fraserian construct of a general oriental vegetation god who periodically dies and rises from the dead has been discredited by more recent scholarship. There is no evidence for a resurrection of Attis, even Osiris remains with the dead, and if Persephone returns to the world every year, a joyous event for gods and men, the initiates do not follow her. There is a dimension of death in all of the mystery initiations for the concept of rebirth or resurrection of either gods or mystai, that is, initiates, is anything but explicit. This is uh, from Ancient Mystery Cults by Walter Burkert, 1987. Uh, This is a lot of bunk. Uh, It's been uh, thoroughly refuted uh, by uh, uh, Richard Carrier and... uh, Oh, uh, others, um, Derek, what the heck's his name? I can't think of it. He's written for the Journal of Higher Criticism. Maybe I'll think of it later. I've written about this. Um, Jonathan Z. Smith is one of the big uh, deniers of uh, the dying and rising God myth, uh, Bart Ehrman also. I fail to understand how they can say this, uh, given newer discoveries and archaeological evidence that show people believed in the resurrection of Attis and Baal and Tammuz uh, and uh, Osiris. Come off it. Uh, They say, oh, he remained among the dead. Yeah, as the judge of the living and the dead. Uh, It's it's just like Jesus being the the judge of all mankind and all that. It's just 
just absurd. Uh, they're trying to give aid and comfort to uh, the conservatives. I don't know why, uh, but um, uh, also it is just a fad. Uh, there's this thing among scholars where you want to show how everybody before you was wrong. And so you have started the new revolution and so forth. It is just uh, the slaying of the father by, uh, by the son to usurp his position. I do think it's just a fad. Uh, so I, I believe that is retrograde scholarship. They're going backwards, not forwards. Uh, let's see. Andrew White says, I hope I got the right guy here. No. Uh, I think that was, oh boy, this is a toughie. I've lost track here. Anyway. I've recently been deep in the dark subterranean corridors of the history of the Irish Republican Army for some scholarship I'm doing as part of my day job as a crime victim's rights lawyer. Bravo. That's a long story. Reading biographies of the mythic heroes of Irish republicanism like Michael Collins, James Connolly, and Cathal Brugge, hope I'm saying that right, uh, it struck me that there is a significant difference between them and the character of Jesus that suggested an argument for mythicism that I've never seen before, and I'm wondering if it might be new. Or cogent, i got a word left off here. Um, Specifically, the issue is this. Looking at real leaders of a movement who we know existed and comparing the myth-making about them, in every case I've examined from the Irish independence movement, there were always contemporaneous opponents who were equally mythologized by those who came after. For every supporter of Collins who argues he was right about the Irish Civil War, there are others who claim that Brugge had history on his side in opposing peace with the UK. As I thought about this, it occurred to me it is plain in other mythic historical figures as well. For every Thomas Jefferson or Alexander Hamilton, there's a John Adams or Patrick Henry with his own faction of contemporary supporters. Even in the antiquity of Judaism, in the age of Jesus, you have the opposing figures of Paul and Peter in the early Christian movement, and Hillel and Shammai at the beginning of Rabbinic Judaism. There are maybe some exceptions to this, but I am at a bit of a loss to think of any. Maybe George Washington you know, didn't have opponents, but I imagine the royalists of Britain still feel a bit salty toward him. Jesus, however, stands alone with no contemporaneous faction of detractors lionizing a figure who opposed him. Perhaps the closest thing to it would be John the Baptist, but that relationship seems uh, not if this character, not of this character, because early Christians adopted John as a precursor rather than an opponent of Jesus. Uh, now, let me point out, I said a moment ago that there was this uh, uh, strife between and competition between early Christians and early John the Baptist sectarians, and uh, that uh, Christians tried to fold them in by making John the precursor uh, the, uh, for, for Jesus, as I like to say, the Ed McMahon for Jesus. Here's Jesus, the front man. Uh, but that seems to me to be a kind of compromise 
co-optative maneuver that does imply John the Baptist was a figurehead of an opposing faction. Uh, And actually, in the pseudo-Clementine writings, he is said to be that. There's a debate between Pharisees and uh, Essenes, I think, and Baptist followers and Christians. And they, they even give you standard Baptist arguments against Jesus. Uh, And uh, also, uh, John the Baptist is depicted as a false prophet, uh, whereas um, Yeah, whereas uh, Jesus is the good one. Uh, John the Baptist is considered the father of all heresies, that his disciples included Docetheus the Samaritan and Simon Magus, uh, and so forth. Uh, There's some evidence there that uh, John the Baptist, at least as represented by some followers, was an opponent of, uh, of Jesus or perceived as such. Uh, let's see. Now, of course, you know, the Gospels depict Jesus having a bunch of detractors among the Sanhedrin and local Pharisees. I guess you're, you're saying, however, why no figurehead there? Oh, well, that is interesting. That, but I don't know that, uh, that's enough to negate this, uh, this notion that there were all of these people uh, whispering about Jesus and saying, don't listen to this guy. He's just, this is just stage trickery. He's casting out demons by invoking Beelzebub. He's just a cheap uh, charlatan. Anyway, uh, that Jesus doesn't fit this pattern seems to suggest at least his historical unimportance, if not calling into question his existence entirely. Do you know of any historicists who have addressed this problem, arguing against mythicism, or if the argument has been made previously. I don't. Uh, This is Jason Quackenbush, I believe. Uh, I I don't think I've heard that before. Um, So it's, uh, but it it doesn't seem to me to be a a really convincing argument. Um, But uh, I don't know, worth, worth thinking about and pursuing further. Okay, let me deal with at least one more of these. This is from... Oh, no. Oh, yeah, this is from Lodher. Uh, Your thoughts on or and comments on the following would be appreciated. Someone I spoke with claimed that there is no verse in the Bible that says God's people would be judged. I provided a verse, and he did some mental gymnastics to rationalize it. After a few more verses, he seemed to concede on judgment, but moved the goalpost to punishment by claiming the saved would be automatically acquitted and have complete assurance of eternal life. I assume by that you mean they would stand trial, but they'd say, oh, nope, not guilty, get out of here. Uh, he didn't seem very clear on the distinction between judgment and punishment, so I suspect he was just doing some ad hoc patchwork. These are the verses on judgment that I provided, and I will follow the voice cues here. Romans fourteen ten through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. 
so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Uh, let's see, scrolling down. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 1 Peter 4.17 For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And finally, Romans 2.3 Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? He claims that Jesus' death gives believers a get-out-of-jail-free card so that they will not be judged or will be found not guilty, acquitted. Uh, ultimate punishment of the second death will never occur on the saved. The sinners, uh, when repented and claim God's promise of salvation, will receive automatic acquittal. The white garment that will be given will cover all the sins. The key in Revelation is about those who overcame by the grace and mercy of God. Uh, they will receive, uh, I'm doing the wrong voice, they will receive all the rewards. When we focus on the judgment of God and not highlight the reason of the cross, we end up having a misconception of who God really is. It's all about love of God, how he gave his Jesus, gave Jesus to die for us, and how he demonstrated that living a perfect life, obedience to the law, is possible when we totally will and surrender our lives to God's will. I was under the impression that the standard interpretation is that there is judgment and punishment, but that Jesus has taken the ransom upon himself, substitutionary atonement. If there is no judgment, there is no reason for Jesus to die. If we are declared not guilty, there is no sin and no reason for Jesus to die. This evasive maneuver seems like it could be a standard apologetic heresy or theory of salvation. If so, by what name might it be known? Could you explain the underlying rationale? Uh, I think there is some harmonization going on here, because these passages you quote seem certainly to be speaking to uh, Christian believers, with the possible exception of Romans 2-3, which seems to be like a kind of a hypothetical debate with, uh, with Jews, because uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's about Jew, Jews condemning, Jews who were proud of having the Torah, uh, condemning pagans, uh, whereas the writer not Paul originally. I go along with uh, uh, with J.C. O'Neill on this. This seems to be an interpolated Hellenistic synagogue sermon. Uh, you know, you, you're not going to escape judgment just because you know about the law. Uh, if these uh, rubes who don't have the, the Torah uh, do good things because they have the essentials of the law engraved on their hearts, they're going to come off better than you. So uh, leave that one out of, uh, out of account. But with the first three, yeah, we're definitely talking about Christians. And uh, they're not out of the woods yet. 
that even though they are Christians uh, and 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 will well they will still have to answer for what they did. Well, that seems incompatible with the idea that, uh, as it says in the Gospel of John, you will not come into the judgment. Uh, but what is it? Uh, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me shall not face the judgment, but will uh, have eternal life. That does. That's realized eschatology. Uh, that's. Uh, well, there's some in, in the Pauline materials, too, but it's really a, the trademark of John's gospel, minus the material contributed by the ecclesiastical redactor. Uh, he says, whoever hears my voice um, uh, will not taste death, will have everlasting life, uh, and so on. Now, apparently, because they correct it later saying, and uh, comes back to life, rises from the dead, like on the last day, then you'll be off scot-free. But originally it said it's taken care of now, uh, as soon as you believe it. And uh, so there, there's that problem. This seems, it's saying the judgment has come already. Uh, and if you're a believer in Christ, you're off the hook. This is kind of Gnostic, not only because of the, you don't have to wait for it in the future, it's happening now, the realized eschatology, but also the idea of, of the belief being salvific. There is something in John, of course, about the death of Christ being important, but I'm not sure logically it is if this other stuff is true. And I think that's what you've got here. Uh, the, the Catholics have always seen that the New Testament still holds Christians accountable. You're not necessarily going to be saved. Uh, that's presumption. There's many a slip twixt the communion cup and the lip. Uh, no, I mean, uh, Arminians have a, ver a variation on that. Uh, all right, you are saved now, but you could be stupid enough to lose it. Uh, but um, the... Uh, that's a kind of that's a different wrinkle on it. You are saved the hour you first believed, but you could ruin it. You could commit spiritual suicide. But Catholics have always figured, no, I'm on the way, and I do not presume. Uh, now, there's no question that uh, Christ has done the work needful to save sinners. But there is question about whether, number one, people will accept it, and number two, if they will uh, think they believe it but have not really embraced it or they sink into sin, who knows the future? This comes up in uh, the... Um, in Thomas Akempis' Imitation of Christ, where he's saying that he's praying and asking Christ for assurance that he will be uh, saved in the end, or asking how he can know. Uh, and uh, the answer is, just keep going as if you knew you would be saved. So th that issue wouldn't come up, right, if you believed, oh yeah, this is signed, sealed, and delivered. Now, why do Protestants say that? Uh, the hour I first believed. Well, they're focusing on a different aspect of this, saying that uh, I may be a schlemiel, I may be a, a mediocre Christian, but uh, the death of Christ 
absolved me uh, of the need for that uh, in that forgiveness is offered uh, and and uh, I am justified in the sight of God, viewed through the righteousness of Christ as if it were my righteousness. Uh, and uh, it's like an account book that I owe the debt, but I can't pay the debt. And so somebody says, hey, give me the the uh, the bill. I'll pay it for him and I credit that uh, price there. And so they're saying, I may screw up, but the the passion of Christ, the death of Christ, uh, there's no way that's inadequate. And that's what my salvation is based on. And if it's not, if it's still dependent on my uh, doing good works, what's the point of him uh, dying uh, for me at all? Uh, and uh, and so there's you can kind of see both sides of this. Catholics would say, well, of course, the death of Christ is sufficient to save. But how are you appropriating it? Uh, and so on. Whereas the Protestant says, if it were a case of that, I'm still being saved by works, if at all. So I think you have two different views of salvation within the New Testament and different churches have uh, seized on one or the other. Uh, okay, this one is from, uh, what's a longie? Uh, from Luther again. This guy is a real reader of the Bible and scholarship. I've heard you mention a few times how it is unlikely to impossible that Jesus could have said the line in Matthew 16.24 about anyone wishing to be his disciple having to take up his cross and follow me uh, because the hearers wouldn't have been able to make sense of it as Jesus hadn't been crucified on the cross yet. I'm reading SGF Brandon's Jesus and the Zealots, and he so far has made a couple of references to crucifixion as a common method of dealing with zealots, you know, the anti-Roman rebels, though I haven't finished the book, and I don't want to be presumptuous, uh, that Jesus was at the very least surrounded by zealots and potentially would have been counted among them himself. Uh, isn't it possible that a statement like Matthew 16, 24 could make sense in that context, that zealots would be aware of the potential of their demise on a cross, especially if they were following a particularly vocal and public one like Jesus? And of course, you you remember that Brandon is arguing that uh, Jesus and his disciples were revolutionaries and thus literally or, well, I don't know, zealots, whether or not they would have used that term. One thing I can see as an impediment is, is the carry part. I have no idea whether it is historical that people were made to carry their own crosses or whether that was just an invention of the passion narrative. I admit that might ruin the idea of my question because if people didn't carry their own crosses, he wouldn't have said it, regardless of whether ending up on one was common. Uh, let me just comment on that. I, I don't think there is reason to doubt that uh, that all of them carried the cross beam. I think we have enough documentation about crucifixion. 
to to know that that the, you you wouldn't drag the whole darn cross uh, that that the upright would be there at the site of crucifixion. You would carry the the part your arms would be spread out on. So I don't think that is a problem. I will say I've heard this before, and it's one of those things where it it's possible. Anything is possible, but. Would Jesus be publicly recruiting rebels against Rome? That, that's, I mean, maybe the saying didn't originally get spoken in such a context, but that seems to be the case in the Gospels anyway, the narrative. He's speaking of the cross. It's like, sign up today. Uh, that, that seems a little impolitic. But also, it, it just seems to me to uh, hit you between the eyes what this seems to mean for the intended Christian readers. Uh, and that, uh, especially in Luke's version, which says you have to take up your cross daily, uh, that that can't be a zealot thing. And it, it implies he did understand the original connotation as being the cross, the weight of the obligation of uh, of the uh, of, of uh, Christian life. Keep in mind that in Judaism, we have a similar idiom. Usually this is brought up by Christians in connection with a passage in Matthew where Jesus says, um, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and uh, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, um, uh, for my burden is easy and my and, and my uh my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, and the, the rabbis would say, you must take upon yourself the yoke of the kingdom of God. And by that they meant you got to be serious about Torah observance. It seems to me this is another parallel to that, taking up the cross and following Jesus, like the yoke of the kingdom of God in Christian terms. So, yeah, it's possible, but I go with F.C. Bauer. Uh, what is probable? And keep in mind, these things aren't just chronicles of what somebody remembered Jesus saying. They're all written for Christian readers, uh, or people that are thinking of it, in the case of uh, John and possibly Luke. He, uh, and then more, uh, in Brandon chapter four, Jewish Christians and the zealot ideal, page 196, Brandon is discussing Paul's apparent problems with Apollos' gospel as told in Acts. Brandon writes, now in view of the fact that the only other version of the faith with which Paul was in antagonism was that of the Church of Jerusalem, it seems necessary to conclude that the Christianity current at Alexandria was the same as that of Jerusalem, and that it had been established there by missionaries from the Mother Church. Perhaps Brandon is going to make a fool of me shortly by answering my question himself. Remember, he hasn't finished the book. And I've just yet to get there, but that sentence strikes me as a failure of imagination. We don't know that the only other version of Christianity Paul opposed was the Jerusalem Church's form. Rather, we know uh, he opposed that form. Um, 
uh, it seems to me entirely possible that he was in opposition to not just the other form, but every and any other form than his own interpretation. And besides, doesn't Walter Bauer's orthodoxy and heresy and earliest Christianity detail many Christianities consolidating rather than the other way around? Uh, I've read elsewhere, though I think mainly of Eisenman, whom I know used Brandon a lot, that there may well have been Ebionite Jerusalem-type Christians in Egypt early on, but weren't the Gnostics also there, for example? With such a large Jewish population as well as a metropolitan population in general, it seems possible that Apollos's variant need not have been the same as the Jerusalem churches just because Paul opposed both. That strikes me as like saying Methodists must be like Catholics because Lutherans oppose both. Please point out anything I'm missing here. Obviously, Brandon knows a lot more about this stuff than I do, or uh, or I. But uh, I think you're exactly right. Uh, he's still operating in a kind of pre-critical um, framework, at least on this question. Uh, I, I think you know you have to look at uh, at uh, Walter Bauer and uh, it, it certainly I mean scholars have had trouble for a long time trying to identify who the opponents of Paul are in the various letters this one sounds it sounds in this passage that he's aiming his guns at Gnostics. In this one, it seems like he's uh, going after uh, legalistic Jewish Christians, uh, and uh, thus and so, and various things. Uh, some have, in order to, to give an answer to this, said that, uh, well, uh, like uh, Wal uh, Walter Schmidt, for instance, that, uh, okay, these must be Jewish Gnostics, and uh, so on and so on. And uh, finally, I, I think, uh, um, was it, uh, oh boy, was it Dennis uh, Ronald McDonald who said, uh, no, he's, gee, I'm not sure. Maybe it was the uh, the Dutch radicals who said, "No, what you've got here is a scattershot approach. Uh, if if somebody's offering this argument that I don't like, okay, I'm going to blast it. If somebody else is saying this, okay, I'm going after them next. Uh, he doesn't uh, doesn't designate them, but it certainly seems like there were various views, even in Paul's time, that he didn't like. So yeah." Um, I don't think you, even the story of Apollos, right? When he's introduced, it says, oh, this guy, an Alexandrian, which right off the bat makes you think they must have had a rather different view than the Judaistic Jerusalem church, right? All that Philo, uh, Origen, Clement of Alexandria, allegorization and so on. He, he comes into uh, Ephesus and he knows the things about Jesus, but only knew of the baptism of John. Well, wait a minute. And then Priscilla and Aquila have to take him aside and say, well, let me set you straight here, pal. Uh, there's a lot more to it. John 
as Paul says to the Ephesian disciples, he says, yeah, yeah, you're right about John, but he was pre-Holy Spirit. He was preaching the coming one, and that's Jesus. You guys are behind the times. What the heck? I mean, obviously there were different views and uh, that Paul and his colleagues found inadequate. So I think Brandon is jumping the gun there. Uh, let's see. Well, I think I'm going to get uh, get off here. I'm going to be interviewed tonight on the Atheist Reformation podcast. Should be a lot of fun. And uh, I want to rest the old voice uh, before then. But uh, I do have plenty more uh, questions. And I am always receiving more. And keep it up. I hope I can help clear up the puzzles that uh, confuse you. Thanks for being with me on this uh, exciting episode of The Bible Geek, and come on back for more. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.